Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 157 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my life's dream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by songwriter, musician, Chris Free. He was one half of the duo A-Craze, who was signed to Paul Weller's Respond record label in the early 1980s. We chat about his love of punk, including The Jam and The Clash and his first band, The Users, to meeting Lucy Barron, forming A-Craze and getting signed to The Weller Project. The band played on the Respond Package tours on lineups featuring Tracy Young, The Questions and Vaughan Toulouse. They released one single, the Paul Weller produced Wearing Your Jumper, and we'll dig into that, along with the Respond sampler LP, Love The Reason. We'll talk about the love of A-Craze in Japan, which saw Chris and Lucy getting the band back together in 2009 for a compilation album called Such Bliss. And we'll dig into Chris's own projects, The Sound of Pop Art and a Mad Affair EP, which were produced by Andy Lewis. Yes, another Paul Weller connection there. Let's get into it. Chris Free, thanks for joining me. Great. Thanks, Dan, for asking. First of all... Let's clarify on the band name that we're going to be talking about, because at some points you were called The Craze on different posters with Mr. Weller and the response tour and stuff. Then it became A Craze. Which one do you prefer? I know we were always A Craze. I think uh, things like the Aylesbury Friars poster, which I have seen, that, that was just a mistake. All right. <laughs> just a they were obviously told the the craze by some kind of PR person who was probably thinking about other things or something. Yeah. Lucy came up with the name. Um, I don't know where she uh, dreamed that up from. Okay, nice. Well, thank you for clearing that up because I, I did wonder. Let's first kick off with the, um, well, well, this is a Paul Weller fan podcast. We should we should kick off with Mr. Weller. Um, yeah. When was it you first discovered the music of the jam? Because punk was a big thing for you, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I was sort of going at school. I was, went to a secretary one school and said the school discos were sort of Motown with sort of glam, sort of Slade and all the rest of it and T-Rex. Then there was a guy at school, Kevin Stern, and he um, was getting anything associated with Bowie and he came to school with Raw Power Iggy in the Stooges one day and I, th- I think he came home to mine afterwards to play it on a little sort of, da- it wasn't a set, it was a sort of suitcase speaker Sanio I think it's called and the two, it looked like a suitcase and you opened it out two speakers on top and then it was a little record deck and anyway, so I heard Raw Power and I thought God I really like this and funny enough I kind of uh, the actual track Raw Power reminded me of Dancing in the Street it seemed to have a straight beat but it had this chunky guitar and then um, that was about whenever that was 74, 75 and then we were hearing things like New York Dolls MC5 always along with The Who and um, you know Motown and things then going to punk group then punk started happening I first came across the jam obviously with um I, I didn't go to London. I was in Cambridge 
when In the City came out. And that was like just a fantastic pop symbol to me. I loved all the, you know, the guitar screw uh, overdubs and stuff. And it was just a great, great single. And you could tell that this lot must be very talented. And I did actually at that time, the jam played the Corn Exchange in Cambridge. And I don't think I went to the gig, but I do remember a hamburger stand on the market square late on. I'm Either we were playing somewhere as the users or something, um, but I was in the Mark Square about midnight, and then there was Weller there at the same um, kiosk or whatever, and I, I kind of thought, oh, that's Paul Weller. Um, didn't say anything, but, you know, we were standing there and, uh, getting hamburgers at the time. For a second there, I thought you were going to say, I can't, I can't quite remember if I was at the jam gig or not, but what I do remember is this amazing burger I had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it always struck, something, you know, I did sort of think, oh, that's Paul Weller. Um, <laughs> it was just really that, tasty. I can't remember if I saw one of the greatest bands in Britain ever, but yeah. I do remember that brilliant hamburger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, no, I tell you what, I did see the jam. The famous Clash gig at the Rainbow with the jam, the Clash, I forget. It could have been Susie and the Banshees or the Buzzcocks. There was about five where all the seats got ripped out. And I remember seeing them. I don't know if that was before In the City came out or not. Probably before it came out. And I do remember thinking, oh, they remind me a bit of Dr. Feelgood, who I loved at the time. Um, Love Wilco and all the rest of it. And I thought, wow, they're fantastic. Then I thought, well, bloody hell, what are this Clash lot going to be like? Uh, anyway, the Clash came on, were absolutely out of this world, that gig. And then from that gig, I went and saw two or three Clash on that White Riot tour at Chelmsford and Dunsport. And I subsequently saw them later, and I never thought they were as good as the, the early Clash just before they were just out of this world. And they were different because I'd seen Fieldcoats and I kind of could relate where the jam come from they were fantastic but the clash just had the edge for me then um, that leads on to government they, i really took notice of all mod comms that's the one that got me and we'll talk about you know where this comes from from you this this you know the music and wanting to be in it and wanting to sign a band and all that but as somebody who loves writing presumably mr weller and his lyrics has been an inspiration in that sense yeah 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 you know he's written so many great songs and there were so many great um, lyrics in that early jam period. It's quite incredible. You know, obviously some people get blessed with some incredible talent. A town called Malice, that lyric always, I think, is fantastic. And, um, well, there's loads of them, isn't there? I mean, um, and it just goes on and on. I guess it gets more difficult for him now, although he's really kept it together. I think having sort of younger band members and what he's surrounded with, um, you know, you see everyone else is sort of a bit detached from reality, or but he's managed to sort of maintain that thing for ages you know let me ask about you so so here we are in cambridge you're gr- growing up in cambridge and and these bands um obviously are an influence because you start a band as well or what age did you get into playing music and talk, tell me about the users which was um a punk band that you formed somewhere around when i was about 14 15 at that point music was really really important or pop music it was like and it was funny because there was only like top of the pops or an old gray whistle test and probably pretty much nothing else, and sort of Radio 1 countdown to the charts each week. And then there were these music press papers like NME, Melody Mary, and NME was in school every week, sort of read like a Bible. But uh, so much so um, around that time that um, the teacher, our sports teacher, Sam Summers, he sold me Exile on Main Street and Beggar's Bank. <laughs> Teachers would come. Is he allowed to? Were they allowed to sell stuff to the kids? <laughs> well, that was it. I mean, teachers would come in with albums. Everyone was doing sort of swaps and stuff, and that's how it was, you know. And I said, you know, and um, it was a totally different, different world. This is when I was about fourteen. I was listening to Becker's Banquet, and there was a track called "Parachute Wounds." She trackled. Beggar's Banquet, and I thought, God, I'd like to play that on the guitar. And it was just a down, out, and down, down, out, and down. I still remember it now. And I thought, God, I'd really like to be able to play that. And then, so somewhere around there, I got an acoustic guitar, and um, I got uh, in Miller's in Cambridge, I got a sort of 
guitar music book for that album. And, and that's where it started, basically, and then started playing guitar. I just wanted to write songs right from the word go. Uh, that's what I saw the purpose of having this guitar. And it was to write songs, you know. Obviously, um, the Beatles had grown up with the Beatles on the radio and all the rest of it. And uh, the whole thing seemed to be like uh, this was a vehicle to express yourself pop music was that and so pretty soon i think after about you know a year of playing or something a year and a half retaking gcse's and there was a guy andrew and uh played drums and uh we said oh let's get three or four of us together and very quickly we suddenly had a group users and we were just right started writing straight away and uh i think we played one gig Raw Records, uh, Lee Wood, he, I think, saw us. Oh, we used to go into his record shop. Um, there used to be record shops everywhere, and he would play us things like the creation and all this kind of stuff. And he was, we got to this idea of setting up our own record label, which was going to be, funny enough, Raw Power Records. But what happened, he paid for us to go and demo um, some tracks, four tracks, and... Um, in Spaceford Studios, and then what happened was um, about, I don't know when it was, about two, you know, a month or so later, we walk into Andy's local record shop, and there's this record, and, I, and the guy behind the counter said, isn't this you? Or it, was a, <laughs> um, it was something like that, and, and then that was it. And then still to this day, I mean, that was on Gary Crowley's um, compilation, which was out in June or whatever, Punk and New Way. But even when we were doing Muses, we would co- we did a good couple of um, It's Not True, Off The Who, first album, and uh, we were doing things like uh, Lies, the Knickerbockers, which offer an album called Nuggets, but it's very Beatley and stuff like that. We weren't sort of you know, sticking in one kind of area. You recently as well, I don't know if this was a lockdown thing, but revisited that, remastered it and released it. back on Bandcamp, right? That's right. And that remastered thing is getting touched up again. And that's going to be coming out on Japanese vinyl. That'll be coming out, I imagine, early next year. But all the way, I didn't realise, because I stopped me doing music years. We must get back to the Wellerfella at some point. But... Um, <laughs> um, we, uh, I stopped doing music for years and um, and I moved back to Cambridge from London. I was walking down Mill Road and this guy, uh, Greg Paul, as we call him, uh, sort of local DJ, came flying up and he goes, you've got to play Sid Barrett Memorial, Grand Chester Meadows. And I go, oh, I, I don't play anymore. And he goes, you're, well, we'd already swapped numbers. Uh, and he goes, oh, no, you'll get a phone call when you get home. And he wasn't hearing that. I didn't actually play anymore. And I get home, there's a phone call going, oh, you know, can you learn four songs or so and perhaps memorial and that's how all this later period suddenly started because i went and did this thing and then we got a call from dizzy holmes who runs detour records i go oh how'd you get number and he goes oh i saw you were in cambridge sid barrett and i phoned up directory inquiries this was when (laughs) directory inquiries and there was a free and got my phone number and then he said if you've got any tapes unreleased tapes of the users we'll drive up from wherever it was, Guildford or somewhere, Medway or whatever, and we'll, um, you know, you can come and put it out. So that's suddenly how it all... Oh, wow, that's yeah. incredible. <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. All and from that he... little conversation in the street. With that yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where, yeah. And then what happened was like, he said to me, oh, just before it was coming out, he goes, do you know you've been on all these compilations and these kind of things? Uh, and I was going... No. And I think he got to a point because we'd had so many conversations. He sort of, this was just like the day before his song was coming out. I think he was sort of thinking, either this guy is playing real dumb or he really doesn't know. Because I didn't buy a, a music magazine or anything, you know, I was fully involved in sort of doing um, a retro shop and then retro t shirts and all this kind of thing and making up shirts and stuff. I wasn't following music at all. Let's talk Mr. Weller. Let's talk Respond because uh, it'd yeah. be interesting to understand how that all came about. So Paul Weller creates Respond. And this is, I guess, the final phase of the jam if we talk about them. And this is, in his mind, this is a basically like a, like a, a Motown project, for, yeah, like, yeah. isn't it? And it's a, all about yeah. promoting young artists. It's this yeah. label that's part of Polydor, but it's his label. It's his project. It's him and John Weller really takes off in the early days of the Style Council. We have people like Tracy Young. We have some really interesting records by The Questions and Paul Barry's been on the podcast. Um, Dolly Mixture. 
the late Vaughan Toulouse. I love Vaughan, so, yeah. So, so a really interesting project. And, and we'll talk about the fans aspect because some people are so fanatical about this label, as you'd expect. But how did you come to get involved? Was it you, you sending off a demo? Was it Paul hearing about you? Was it that fella in the street? What was it? <laughs> Lucy was, a, she was like a backing vocalist in Cambridge when I was doing the users to a group called the Heartthrobs. I came out the users. I remember stopping that thinking, oh, I can't do this anymore. Then I had about a year poodling about in London, or maybe it was nine months. Time goes sort of, uh, it's all fast at that time. And then um, Lucy turned up on my, I don't know how she came round. She, maybe she came round with a mutual friend or whatever, David Stevenson, it could have been. I think I played a couple of chords and she went, what? Or whatever. And then I thought, oh, I'll come round again. And we wrote about four songs in about sort of two hours or something. You know, it was just like very easy. And, and then it was like, wow, that was pretty productive. And this was in Queen's Park, Top of Notting Hill. And then she was working at PRS, Performing Rights Society. There was a bass player there, Rich Starting. It was like, well, let's go and demo, you know. And um, so we did. And then immediately, yeah, sent off those demos. And then uh, I remember we were now living in... I mean, so long ago, Dan. <laughs> it was 40 uh, years, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm thinking, hang on, that was Queen's Park. But I remember getting the first call from Weller, and I thought I was in Kilburn then, uh, Kingsgate Road. And I remember that I was on a landing, and it was about, it seemed to be close to midnight. At that time, I think I was slightly... Um, sort of away with the fairies or whatever. I don't know what someone had given me. But anyway, the phone goes, and then his voice on the end of the phone is about midnight, and I'm lying on the sort of landing, as I did, and that's where the phone was on the ground. And, and I pick up the phone, and it goes, Hello, it's Paul here. Um, I'm really excited by uh, the demos. I've heard your demos. Do you want to come in Solid Bond? And I'm going, who's this? <laughs> and at first, I thought it was a wind-up. You know, I thought, oh, God, this is a bit of a wind-up. This isn't, you know, it's midnight. What's going on? But it turned out to be real. And then we went down to Solid Bond and met Paul. And from there, I think about the next week, we went in, we'd give it some emotion or whatever. And um, and he said, oh, I'd like to, um, I'd really like to uh, give this to Tracy. You know, what would you think about that? And we just go, okay, yeah, go along with this. And somewhere around there, we must have signed to respond. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, th I think when you think about that Motown model as well, the other thing Paul was trying to replicate was you, it was for your writing as much as for your performance, wasn't it? Yeah, so yeah, you, yeah. You're all like writing for each other. Like Paul would write for Tracy, you'd yeah, write yeah. for Tracy, questions write for, you know, for themselves, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a real kind of mixture. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because the fans were like to be, the music press was definitely totally against it, or there might be some positive articles one could dig up. But generally, there was a sort of feeling like, uh, and I don't know why, it was like, you know, I think they were trying to have a go at Paul by going, oh, you can't do this, you know, like you can't set up and think you're, you're this or something. And so um, that was a real shame. There were some great gigs. I remember playing Kingston on Thames and, you know, we went up around the Midlands. I, remember, I think Aston University. Well, we went up to Scotland everywhere. There were some really um, good times. And I did like hanging out. Uh, Vaughan was a great guy. And I remember when we were playing in East Anglia around Norwich and places, he would just drive by the Red Beetle at the time, uh, Volkswagen. He would just come with me and Lucy in the car. So we'd just be driving off around. And uh, there was a lot of people sort of seemed to be sort of like, really, ah, ah, ah. But I mean, Vaughan was a lot looser. And uh, yeah, he was sort of out of the mode that you'd expect. Yeah. Well, you had these yeah. things, these respond package tours. Yeah, yeah. And so you'll be traveling around the country. This was April 1983, and the, the respond posse, the respond posse tour, and Tracy and Vaughan and people like that. And yeah. I think, did you not do Hacienda in Manchester? Yeah, yeah, that was a great gig. And uh, funny enough, when we first got on Facebook, um, I can't remember who it was, girls started uh, writing to us, going, oh, I saw you at the Hacienda, and, and it's something 
forward. But I remember playing that place thinking, this is really good atmosphere here, and uh, I really liked it. And then subsequently, obviously, years later, you think, oh, yeah, it's a kind of, it was an iconic place. But it definitely had a vibe there. I really enjoyed that one. Yeah. Yeah. There was also one for Paul's 25th birthday, which was would have been one of the really early Style Council things. Um, and this was the Paris Theatre in London. I think you were part yeah, of that yeah, for the BBC. Yeah? And the questions were on the Star Council were on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, all around that time, I remember uh, first off, I think we were having some rehearsals and uh, Steve White came in and he was rehearsing with us. And he was about 16 or whatever. And I, I remember saying to Paul, oh, I will have him as our drummer. He's really good. And Paul goes, no. I'm having him as well. I mean, he literally hadn't played live with Paul then at all. It was kind of like uh, thinking, yep, he's the drummer. <laughs> and, uh, in fact, someone who passed away last year, who, was a, who I got to know later on or in the whenever, like 10 years back or something, at uh, time, Simon Wells, he gave me a um, sort of bootleg um, cassette or some kind of recording of that Paris thing of what we were doing. And it's really weird. I think the first song or the first two or definitely the first one, I have no recollection of it whatsoever. You know, it's like we must have written it that week. Played it on that night and never played it again. Spend you know, <laughs> uh, it. It was like it was like sort of watching film of yourself in you know a different country, <laughs> speaking a different language or something, and thinking, "Yeah, that's me." But um, <laughs> <laughs> and you think sort of halfway through, it's going to jog something, and you're going to go, "Oh yeah, I remember that." But not at all. I played it two or three times. No, so that was a really good good. And I do remember. Paul rehearsing um, Times of Tight, Jimmy Young cover there. And I thought, bloody hell, this is a number one. You know, he's got that has got to be a single. Do, 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 Yeah, Times of Tight. Get it, get it, get it right. That had everything for me. It had sort of style council jam, everything in there. And I mean, obviously, he had so much good material himself. I don't think they ever. They didn't actually ever record it, did they? No, it wasn't ever recorded. And actually, that was the only time they ever performed it live as well. Uh Let's stay on the live gigs, because wasn't there a support culture club? Was that Brighton? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was a thrill. Saying the gig was Saturday, we get a call on something like Friday afternoon from Joe, the call manager guy. Well, I had a fantastic team around him. John Weller, obviously, and his mum and sister. And then there was uh, Kenny Wheeler. And then there was Joe, the tour manager. And just this little nucleus of um, really good. And anyway, he gives us a call going, oh, what are you doing? Something like, what are you doing tomorrow's guys? Well, do you want to support Culture Club at uh, Brighton Conference Centre and whatever it was, be it Solid Bond and we'll be driving down or whatever at so-and-so time. Uh, the funny thing about that was um, we went on. I don't think we were announced. The sort of lights were down. We go on, and then suddenly I feel things hitting me, you know, not plans, but like things were hitting. And then suddenly the lights go up. There's this huge intake of breath. Like, <gasps> and then it was like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> and then there was suddenly all these like uh, sort of little dolls of boy Georges all around feet that have been sort of thrown on stage where I think they thought we were going to be culture club or something. Uh, you know? <laughs> and, um, and so then, uh, but that was great. And we held them off for about, I don't know, I think we played about 35 minutes and it, they didn't really get restless till about the last song. You know, I think we did very well there. Um, but that was great. I think God knows how many that place holds. You probably know. Yes, yeah, I've been there a few times. Big old venue, isn't it? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but they were all like Boy George lookalikes in the audience as well, well weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, they were number one at the time with Karma Chameleon. It was actually right. number one. I do remember the sound check where they went around everyone individually and they had that backing vocalist, I forget what her name was, Helen someone, and they did private number as a the stats tune, um, as a sound check thing when they all came together. Uh, and that was fat. And I thought, bloody hell, they're good. You know, like I remember saying to Paul on the whenever it was Monday back in Solid Bond that they were 
much, much better than I thought they were going to be. They could all play, that's for sure. Let's talk about recording. So you get the offer from Paul. You you mentioned you've written Give It Some Emotion. That becomes a Tracy Young single. Mm. But in terms of you and your band, how many sessions did you have recording in the studio? We had lots. I mean, there were more tracks, actually. We did a version of you got to be kidding or you must be kidding and we went round to this is Lucy and I we went round to um, Pete's and it was an absolutely a stomping version that he did all these sort of brass parts for Tracy subsequently recorded it but that initial demo which I didn't have a copy of or Lucy was fantastic so how did it work then you were you obviously had a job and then you suddenly get the respond deal so you were giving up the job and you were on some kind of retainer presumably are you yeah on a retainer weekly retainer which was something like 50 pounds a week which probably in today's would be about 300 quid a week or something you know i, I know this would be yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah i mean yeah probably is about that yeah i don't know what i was doing before i did odd jobs before i was kind of working um in kensington book and toy shop I can't remember. I did all sorts of things. I did actually that thing of washing dishes at the BBC that the Fash sang about in Career Opportunities. I actually had a week of doing that. <laughs> um, uh, Lucy was obviously at PRS. Uh, I can't remember what I was doing beforehand. I love the fact that you just jack it in, though, and suddenly you're on this retainer. And for like 18 months, you're part of the Solid Bond setup. You're part of the Respond record label setup, well as team, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, there. Well, that's what happened basically yeah and i remember being down in the studio all the time when they were uh recording cafe bleu being at a lot of those sessions and i can remember paul borrowing um my acoustic to show dc lee head start for happiness at noma studios i remember him coming in oh come on you acoustic chris and and going through and uh the best one in the paul recordings thing. I mean, I was there for all those money got away and all the rest of it. I get a late night call from Pete Wilson and um, he was going, look, Chris, come to the studio, get a cab down, come to my bludge. Uh, you've got to tell Paul he can sing this song, do this vocal. So get a cab. And it was about midnight getting the cab, like say, uh, I'm up in Kilburn, so get a cab down there. And there's just um, uh, the Weller fella and Pete Wilson, and he's doing the vocals to um, Long Hot Summer and Paris Match. And Paris Match, he's like, sort of, you know, getting full on into it and talk about not thinking he can sing it, which I think is why, you know, he had that Tracy Thorne coming to it, my DC lead, you know. But, you know, and um, this went on for quite a time. I remember him coming through going, you know, what do you think should be the single out of the two? And I was going, Paris Match. It's got to be Paris Match. And, of course, it was long one summer. Uh, well, I mean, like, you know, the A-side or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. I was also amazed at the time Paul had that total overseeing thing where, you know, he, he was actually doing it there in, um, I mean, maybe they did some demos for it or I don't know how much was actually done in Paris, but they, he had that whole angle and going over with Pete Anderson, that was a fantastic photo session. Pete Anderson was great, by the way, photographer, he did a load for us. He had that thing of not just sort of like, here's another single, you know, there was that whole sort of internationalist and um, this is the Paris EP, you know. So you mentioned Pete Anderson, who um, part of that setup in those early days, the Star Council, but it's linking in with all the work that he's doing with Respond, and Simon Halfen's heavily involved yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all guy. like a total team mentality, a team effort, isn't it? All these people working really collaboratively and inspiring each other. So let's talk about this. Here we get it. The the single, I've got the 12-inch here. This is oh, look, it's Lucy. There we are, wearing a jumper. Lucy looking fabulous on the front cover. This is October 1983, this comes out. And it's, it says, A Craze are Lucy, Chris, Rick and Mark, featuring Mr. Michael Talbot on Wurlitzer, produced by Brian Robson and A Craze. Photography, Peter Anderson, like I say. And this is this is the single. This is the only single that we had as a release, right? 
Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that it still is a physical thing, right? You've got a record out there. It's, a, it's an amazing thing to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, no, a real feat. That all came about because I think we've recorded Dumb But Not Mute as the A-Sub. At that time, we'd spent about four or five days recording this other track, but it was all just like it felt really stiff and, I don't know, it just wasn't right. And uh, But there was a fantastic dub version, which is Portobello in dub. That was what was supposed to be on that 12-inch, and they went and printed up the wrong one, you know. Oh, so right. Yeah, the vo- that vocal dump not new on there uh, should have been. I think it's even titled on there, isn't it? Titled dub but not new. Oh, so yeah, we had wearing your jumper. We had she is so, and then it's not mentioned on the sleeve, but it'll be mentioned on the on the actual vinyl, right? Yeah, dub, comma but not mute. Yeah, and that is the what is on the Such Bliss compilation. It should have been the dub version, which uh, I'm really proud of. But then that was such a good little mix and such a good vibe and I think that would have uh, enhanced that record a hell of a lot but anyway um, so what happened with that we'd been recording this Dumb But Not Mute and we'd done the dub version Lucy and I wrote Wearing Your Jumper went into Solid Bond into the canteen because that thing you were saying everyone used to sort of go there and hang out or whatever and um, I can remember um, playing Paul this new song with Britain, and he goes, oh, that reminds me of Dion Warwick or something. We've got to record it. And then it was like, okay, let's book, let's book a studio on the Saturday morning. Um, Solid Bomb was booked by, up by somebody else or whatever. And, uh, and then we went down to Victoria to do it in a day, you know, studios down there. Yeah, McTalbert and Steve White on percussion. Yeah. I remember reading, I think it was on the sleeve, it must have been the sleeve notes for the Such Bliss album. Lucy talking about the fact that we were at a motorway service station, I think, ringing Solid Bond to find out where it was at in the charts. Yeah, that sounds likely. I think it's, uh, I think it did get to about number, um, it's probably there in the notes, I don't know, something like number 44 or 46 or something like that. God, well, that's a game when charts were important. I couldn't even tell you what were in the charts now. I don't even have a clue. No, you know? no. And even like they, people would say, people's reaction now would be, okay, they didn't get top 40. And that must have been disappointing, I'm sure. But actually, to even get to that number, you had to sell a shitload of records, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it is, it is odd, you know, um, the amount of sales that things did used to clock up. I'm not sure of the exact sales there, but I do remember... Um, the uses, that first single I was going on about where um, we had to settle, um, we settled out of court. Um, this was like, even when it had been out just about nine months, I think my, my dad got lawyers in to take him to court, the guy who put it out, or records, and he sold 20,000 singles at that point. And he said, uh, okay, I'll give you 2,000 quid, settle out of court, and that would be that. And um, subsequently, it was bloody <laughs> Years and years and years, you know. Um, and it was kind of like, well, 20,000 isn't sort of anything, you know. But, I mean, now, I guess 20,000. You'd be number one for a month for that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that 12-inch, I, I think it's collectible now. Um, a guy that I've recorded a little bit with, uh, Oliver Poppincourt in uh, France, he picked up a copy about... A, I don't know when it was about 18 months ago. I'm like, wow, I've got this, you know. We'll talk about the Japanese compilation stuff, but this was the original Respond compilation. So this comes out whilst the record label is live. So this is 1983. Um, And you've got the little cassette there. Look at that. Yeah. (laughs) Brilliant. And it's like a sampler, I suppose. It's Paul introducing the Respond's act to the world. We get different tracks from the questions and Tracy and A-Craze and Vaughn as the main TKO. It's called Love the Reason, so people know what I'm talking. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. 
Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And your track was Keeping the Boys Amused. Yeah, which I prefer the instrumental that came out on the, uh, again, on the uh, Japanese one. That's a good little session. Well, let me read the notes here, right? So it says on the album, this is on the back of the sleeve, it says A-Craze, Respond's latest signing and a very mixed bag. Chris and Rick's guitars sound like hamster chic. Lucy is a brilliant and original lyricist. Their songs contain a mixture of melody, mystery, and magic. Sparse as as autumn, but with bright outbursts to follow. They wrote Tracy's smash hit, Give It Some Emotion, whilst planning further conquests. Yeah. He was a bit psychic there, as in, we were living in Kilburn, which you could almost call West Hampstead, but we did end up in Hampstead, you know, with the West Hampstead Housing Association. I, I always thought, when I read that, First, I thought that's a bit weird, us being Hampstead chic or something. But then, um, that became a reality. Later, that's where I end up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was the last times I bumped into uh, uh, the Weller fellow too. Um, he parked up there, and he was, he was probably going off to see some nineties Brit pop star. But uh, but yeah, I bumped into him there. Early 1984, Paul does this interview with Kid Jensen. I don't know if you heard this at the time or remember this from the time. We're obviously going back a long way, right? But he talks about how, at that point, he talks about how Respond Records was basically unworkable. And I think you kind of nudged on it earlier where you were talking about the press were giving him such a whole time. The industry itself, he said, and he talks about the fact the industry was totally geared up for profit and not for creativity. It was just hard to make this project work, wasn't it? Yeah, everyone on Respond, I think there was a lot of diversity there, but it was all just getting pigeon-told into just like some Paul sort of play thing and like it's just keep smashing him it wasn't sort of getting a, a fair hearing um, it didn't seem also all started getting a bit pressurised I think I mean I think there were some great releases I mean a Tuesday Sunshine I always thought was out of this world everything and more Dolly Mixture brilliant obviously Tracy's um, stuff and yeah it was like a born to lose his I can remember being in the studio for Fickle Public Speaking and, and I thought, well, that's obviously going to hit like crazy. And it was bizarre. None of these things really took off, you know, took into that. Um, so there was a real reticence for people to, um, I think, in, probably in the industry, and he would know more about that, to kind of get behind it. And they were probably also probably saying to Paul, I had no idea, concentrate on the Style Council and, you know, use your energies for that. Don't worry about all this. But, I mean, the funny thing is, I think all these early Style Council songs are absolutely, you know, the top peak of all that. It was such a productive time. And from what I've read and from what you're saying as well, it feels like all of you were inspiring each other and topping each other and encouraging each other. So it feels like there's so much creative energy involved that you're all just building, building, doing more stuff, giving this song to this other person, all that, right? Yeah. And everyone was about between about sort of 18, 19 to, were you saying, well, it was 25 then or something? Yeah, I think, yeah, it would have been, yeah. So Yeah, you've got that youthful energy, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Everyone's young. I mean, it's quite weird now. Uh, when I play around, even sort of playing in games, people say, oh, this, this great young new group or whatever. And like you'll see the players and they're all about 28, 29, 30. And I'm sort of thinking, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, music is ageless and all the rest of it. I've learned that. But it's you sort of look back at those times and it's kind of like, wow, you know, people were really young, people really young. Yeah. Uh, but also, so I think everybody thought when, you know, at that point, like when you become 30, your career's over and that's it, you're done and dust, you've got nothing to, left to say in music, have you? Well, that's it. I, I definitely was a paid up member of that. I remember getting to sort of about that age or 28, 29, thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to, I, I, I did some other group. And I remember we were playing at uh, the place in Camden, which now gets called the Barfly, but it was called something like the the monarch or something at the time and I uh, had um, Bellstar on bass I forget what her name was and uh, we used to be bass playing Bellstars and uh, I was thinking but I really didn't like a nice guy but I really didn't like the drummer he was a bit flimsy and I remember playing 
with sound check and thinking, I just can't do this. I've got to get a proper job. You know, this is <laughs> I, and I said, this is the last gig to uh, the bell star girl and uh and then after the gig I, I, that was it and, I, and the whole thing was like i can't this is you know got to get a proper job now um and then i went and did sort of film courses and stuff like that uh, camwell arts college and did an art history course and yeah no i just thought and i thought like you're saying too old to be doing uh washed up yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah this kind of thing this is ridiculous whereas now i'm kind of like i'm doing music all the time you finding your muse again i suppose became the sound of pop art and this has been since um since around 2010 more recently you've worked with andy lewis who's been on the podcast was obviously part of weller's band lovely yeah. lovely fella I think it's still the record for the longest episode of the podcast, as you would expect, probably. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so how did that connection come about? I phoned up uh, the tour bus when they were coming to Cambridge, and I think there was a tour manager, Bill, and I, I said, oh, can I get on uh, the guest list or whatever? And this was, you know, like as they were driving up or something. And they, and they said, uh, oh, wait a minute, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, put you down, it'll be Chris Free. So, and then when I got there... On the side of the corn exchange, um, suddenly Andy Lewis is there. And I go, oh, hi, Andy. And he goes, and I go, oh, Chris Freen, who's going, oh, and he's immediate thing, which no one ever says to me. He goes, you're good. <laughs> that was the first thing he said to me. And I, go, <laughs> I go, oh, right, that, that's nice to know. And he goes, yeah, no, we were playing. No, he said they were playing A-Craze on the tour bus when they came into Cambridge. Maybe they haven't had this such bliss. Because, I don't know. And then um, we made that connection or whatever. And uh, in, in COVID, the great COVID times, I'd asked him, Something after that, I'd asked him about a singer. I did a CD before, and he he used a singer on maybe a billion-dollar project or whatever, and um, I was wondering if I could get hold of it too. And I ended up with Carla Milton or Louise Turner, one of the two. But um, then in lockdown, we were messaging each other about something or other and he said what are you doing I said well I'm sitting at home what are you doing sitting at home and it was kind of like he said have you got any songs I said well yeah and then it was like oh well wank them down to a click track like a sort of metronome thing on a key stick and um, I'll build up my end and so we did this like lockdown EP which came out on Spin Out Nuggets A Mad Affair EP and technically your first solo release under your own name as well Yeah, yeah Well it had to be I mean I've got a great partner in crime with all the music that's Sarah Onyet my bass player but I mean the, really all these you know, lot, the last four or five whatever, I think we've done six albums, but definitely last four have been like sort of solo. I mean, I write all the songs, I do the arrangements, but uh, Sarah is a sort of mainstay of that. I think every other person has sort of come and gone and, and all the rest of it. And, and anyway, because I always, I never wanted to be a singer. I, I always wanted to sort of be in a group anyway. There was no way of saying this Man of Fair EP was a group. I couldn't get away with it. And I think... Uh, Lee Grimshaw from Spring Out and Nuggets and Andy said, well, it's got to be Chris Free. You can't say this is that. Um, but funny enough, on this latest album, they were both saying, oh, it's got to be Chris Free. And I actually, um, I did prefer the artwork with uh, the TSOPA on then Chris Free down the bottom. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought that looked visually better, you know. So this is Shapes and Shadows, which is the latest yeah, yeah, one, which yeah. came, came out in June this year, again produced by Andy, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm really proud of this one. I think this one's what uh, everything's been leading up to, and I'm sure uh, I'm going to blow my own trumpet here, but uh, I can't imagine there's too many better LPs released this summer than that. You know, regardless, you know, it's hard to get reviews, and I've had people, you know, it's getting played all all round. So I'll tell you what, though, what what stands out for me, right, is that uh, as yet this hasn't been a sunny summer, right? No. No. The only sunshine coming out of this, this garden office I've built is your album, my friend. Cause yeah, yeah, yeah. There's nothing else going on this summer. That's, that's where the sun is. <laughs> well, the thing was, obviously, a lot of it was done last summer, you know, uh, and we were you know, like the first track. I mean, probably four of the tracks we actually made up on the spot. I kind of like, I'd have a germ of an idea. People come around and then bang, we do it. 
things like the first track and there's one called funny enough which is like a respond instrumental uh, it's called the Lo- and i ended up calling it the lost cafe society bill robinson a, a guy who buys a lot of um stuff and, and all that he goes that's so respond that and it does sound like that which is why i titled it that but um we were doing it up in my loft in cambridge which is tiny sort of um space and it was really hot uh, it was a definite hot day or two and we had to have all the windows shut sort of blind off down to try and keep some of the sound in and we were like sweat <laughs> absolutely sweating away you know like sort of drenched doing this but yeah it felt great i mean because andy was absolutely superb he's got these superb uh microphones and um, you know that cost thousands down and he's an absolute technician and uh great guy to work with and, and it was kind of, and I'd said to him I do not want to I'm not paying to go into a studio I've got you know no one sort of buy, I've, no one buys music to make it worthwhile to go into a studio unless you're some established artist otherwise it's some vanity project you know so I said there's no way going into a studio and he said well you know I've got these mics I can bring around your house so the first song that he heard I sent him a song called From the Beatles to the Bomb, and I sent it to him because up the road, like three or four houses up, I kept hearing this drum beat going on, you know, someone playing drums. We got asked to play a fashion show, um, which was all Arts Council funded, but we were only going to do like four or five numbers. It wasn't worth our regular drummer coming from Colchester. So Sarah and I did this duo, but on the way home, Oh, the next morning, I'm hearing these drums. I'm sort of thinking, I know that two sisters lived there. Now, one was like 19. I knew uh, a younger one. And it was a mo- it was a boom, ba, boom, boom, ba, boom, boom, ba. I thought, oh, well, that's a Motown beat. You know, I think, uh, yeah, she that would have been good to have had, you know, last night or whatever. So I get in contact with the mum on messenger and said, uh, hey, we'd, uh, I didn't know the name. So I said, but, you know, would you feel to like to try a rehearsal, you know, just like try out. And anyway, she goes, oh, yeah, I'll bring her around. I thought, that's funny, bring her around. Anyway, she turns up at the front door, and it's not the older sister, it's the younger sister who looked about, she was 15. And I thought, oh, no. And uh, initially having some kind of age uh, thing, and, and she goes, oh, yeah, she's really excited to, you know, come <laughs> to And I thought, oh, my God, we've got to do this. Anyway, so that long story short, we go to the, the rehearsal, start doing couple numbers and then start doing this beat wrong she's whacking these toms and i'm thinking fucking hell this sounds fantastic you know this is like how Belaine or something you know it had a real 60s kind of ronettes kind of thing going and i saw i kind of video a bit on my phone and i sent it to andy that evening i think i was thinking my god this sounds like so authentic and he immediately writes back going chris book that room I want to record that drummer in that room with you doing that song. Don't change anything on the same kit, which was just a rehearsal drum kit. It wasn't even a kit. I want to record that. Recorded six tunes like that. And then it was like the rest of things, he did the drumming. Like he drummed in. It was the back to this thing where I'd give him a... Uh, an acoustic run through he'd put the drums down in his shed and then we'd do the rest of it in up in the loft but for any respond fans or whatever that is you know i think they'll find something there shapes and shadows the actual track boots from even um uh where andy's playing bass on bringing it all back home that's very uh respondy it's all there beach life of course which is Gary Crowley's played about the past three weeks of his show and dedicated to whatever friends of his or whatever that. And that gets played on Italian national radio too. That one is very um, straight out of that kind of time. And I should ask you, before we go, there was also a few albums ago now. This was on the album To Dream the Most Fabulous Dream, a version yeah. of Shopping, the Shopping. Jam. Yeah, yeah. Well, that came about because Spiritualized, which was some kind of um, cancer-raising project thing where uh, they wanted, uh, I think, sort of Weller songs or something like that and recorded it for that. And then I just put it on that album too. 
And we did that very, you know, that was like literally two hours or an hour and a half straight through. Well, basically, we were in the studio with a piano player, Sean, Sarah and me, with a key stick and a bass. And I think we had two hours to do it in and have it mixed. So uh, I think we put a shaker, well, there's a shaker on it, and that was it. And I wanted to... um, yeah, you're not going to do the same thing as the uh, as the jam or whatever. I mean, whenever do covers, try and uh, put your own mark on it. But I did get those kind of style counselly chords more. I thought that was quite good actually. I liked it going into that sort of slightly who sort of thing. We kept going back to. And I do reference circles at the end. Leading me back to you, Mr. Weller. Um, (laughs) uh, Have you had many connections with Paul since the Respond days? No. Apart from asking him for permission to use all the A-Craze demos and stuff from Solid Bomb, which he said, you know, well, why not? Like I said, I bumped into him in Hampstead. And that was about it. I couldn't believe I went to Gary Crowley's, um, one of his Christmas do's. He has a, a social where he was doing, uh, I'm just going, he said to me, I said to Paul, you were coming down. He said, oh, sorry to miss you. I'm doing something to family. And I couldn't believe that that conversation had taken place at all. I mean, I thought, uh, I don't know, you know, that seems a bit odd. You mentioned getting the permissions for the demos from Paul Weller there for A Craze. And this would have been for Such Bliss, which was this compilation album. Such Bliss, 1983 to 1984, A Craze. And this would have been released around what, 2010? Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. And that came about because MySpace, which was the sort of thing before Facebook, suddenly I was getting these, um, I think I put something about A-Craze or something like that, and you say A-Craze. And then um, there would be these little comments down the bottom of the page. I think you had a picture at the top. It wasn't like Facebook. And some, uh, this Japanese person wrote saying, we love your A-Craze CD. And I went, oh, thanks, you know, come to Burma. And then didn't think anything of it. I thought, well, we never had a CD. And then suddenly about, you know, two days later, oh, uh, I have your A-Craze CD. Really good. And then I'm thinking... What are you crazy? <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then I kind of um, I did a search on the web, and then suddenly found this um, this uh, I forget the name of terracotta or something. Trattoria, wasn't it? Trattoria, so they, this, right. Yeah, this Japanese label that was was reissuing all these things in the late nineties, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I knew nothing about, and I remember Tracy knew nothing about it either. I remember contacting her at the time, going, "Hey, do you know about this? You know, <laughs> None of you have seen a penny from it. Yeah, they're just no, selling all no. these CDs, right? <laughs> yeah, you got it. Uh, they'd done a deal with Paul and John Weller. Yeah, and no one knew anything about it. Yeah. Yeah, I remember buying all this because I got into Weller, it would have been 92, 93, yeah, 92. You know, obviously then he becomes massive. You know, again, you get this, you know, Stanley Road and all that, Wild and all that. I remember those CDs. I remember getting them on import and, and that was my discover, my initial discovery of Respond and then getting the vinyl and all that. Yeah, I remember those CDs like it was yesterday because you all got all the bonus tracks and stuff. And- yeah, yeah. I, yeah, and um, then what happened from that was this other Japanese guy got in contact, uh, Fast Cut Records or whatever, going, you know, have you got any other recordings? You know, we'll put something out if you got them. And that's when I suddenly dug up all the, you know, these cassettes of demos or whatever, you know. I mean, there were 15 tracks put on. I mean, there were ones I didn't put on, but I wish we'd just kept it about 10. But at that point, CDs, there was a craze at one point there. No, no pun intended there. Uh, but there was a time where CDs always had about 14, 15 tracks on. They've now gone back to this 9, 10 sort of album, sort of more LP vinyl format. But then it was this kind of thing to have, was, you know, way more tracks um so he's going we've got to have 14 tracks you know and thought mm, you know whereas now i think if you've just been 10 or so it would have been very yeah. nice as part of that we got a couple of new songs as well there was shooting star and july ran away they were brand new songs were they yes well shooting star was yeah just done that that year or something like that month before that was one after the, the sid barrett thing i suddenly woke up the next day and i wrote a song called england in 
June. I thought, oh, that's really good. Didn't think, and I thought that's the first song I've written in about God knows what, 10, 12, 14 years or something. It, it's, I actually woke up with it, you know, one of those like cliche things where it was just playing and it came out and it was sort of like, oh, um, that came from nowhere. And then about two days later, you know, I wrote another one. And then uh, I suddenly it was all coming out and I was thinking, this is really weird. It's like a gift from God or something. And then I got in contact with Dennis Monday. I said, uh, Dennis, I'm actually, you know, I've got some good songs coming out here. And he, he writes back and he goes, Chris, I retired in 2003. I live in Italy and the music business is totally finished. <laughs> <laughs> and I was sort of like, hey, I'm ready to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is my time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really was like that. I thought, all right. Oh, really? <laughs> you know. And then Shooting Star was one of those. And, uh, and then I thought, oh, I'm going to go and record the things anyway did you reconnect with lucy then on, on that? yeah 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 so lucy oh, wonderful she had some because i said about uh, we need all the tapes and i think she had some tapes maybe that i didn't have or, or i was just checking that she didn't have any cassette tapes that you know i'd forgotten stuff and for instance like i was saying that sign well that paris theater one i mean we must have demoed that but neither of us had it because we were demoing every week in Denmark Street in that Pen Pan Alley thing um, studios and I remember stuff being sent to the Heaven 17 the girl singer on Temptation or whatever and she was going to record one and we'd have to go there every week and record about the three new tunes and God knows what happened to all those cassettes I mean you know you do so many moves over the years that these things get lost along the way Anyway, so Shooting Star was one of those. When we were mastering it with James Perrot somewhere down in Plymouth or Portsmouth, one of the two, I met Lucy there and she did that. And then July Ran Away with the Moon, or July Ran Away, was actually an A-crazed one again that we didn't have a um, cassette of that we'd written at the time then back then. And um, I just started doing it on acoustic there in these little control rooms studio and then the transfer the engineer and um, Lucy started singing it and he goes look why don't we just record this where why are you doing it now so he put two mics and she and we, so we did it live um, so she sang over one side of the room and I did the guitar and boom that was it and uh but that was great and um, yeah, I enjoyed that one a lot, actually. That's so that lovely, helped. isn't it? Because that would have been, what, 20, like 25 years since you recorded together at that yeah. point, would it have been? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I hadn't seen Lucy for about eight, nine, ten years. Um, so it just, uh, yeah, we could flip back into it straight away, which was really good. But I remember around that time, around this time, you're jogging my brain like crazy, Mark. <laughs> Baxter, Baxter, uh, Mono and all the rest of it. I remember him calling us up and I was actually in Camden at the time, at Camden Market, and they were doing some kind of um, concerts, lunchtime concerts uh, um, up in the stables there. And Bax said, oh, do you want to get together with Lucy and play um, there, you know, because some of us, you know, remember the band and, you know, do you want to get that together? I did offer that to Lucy at the time, but I think, you know, it seemed not right to do that. It's a different thing getting back into the studio versus yeah, yeah, so suddenly it. you're playing uh, live in Camden Market, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the podcast, there are always two questions. They're always the same questions, okay? You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be The Jam, The Star Council, or Solo. What would you go with? Oh, my God. It's got to be The Jam, I suppose, although it could be The Star Council. Um, <laughs> or Paul Weller Solo, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd probably go... Uh, one song. I mean, that is really difficult. I probably go, oh, I can't do one song. I mean, I love the band version of Head Start to Happiness. Um, I love the acoustic version of it. I'd probably go Paris Match, but, um, if we're going into the jam, I go, I love Liza Radley. I love Away from the Numbers tonight at noon. I like shopping. Here's a good test, right? So the podcast finishes, this conversation finishes. What is it that you shout at Alexa in the corner to play you? Shout to the top. Shout to the top. Were you part of the setup when that was being recorded? I'm trying to remember. No. That would oh, be no, no. Just out. And I can remember there was a publicist called Chris Carr who was something to do with all of that. And he, I remember bumping into him on Kilburn High Road and him going, oh, he's got a good one, a real good one. 
It's like it's a real good one. And, you know, and then I thought, yeah, that is proper weather. And, you know, every now and then you just hear one and it cuts through all and you think, yeah, that is like, you know, those tunes are sort of just come God-given, I think. Final question. So the purpose of this podcast is to meet lovely people like yourself with these connections to Mr. Weller, hear your stories about your music, your creations as well. But really, the reason I created with the podcast was to get an interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. It's my one big regret. So if it happens... What are we on now? Nearly 160 episodes, for Christ's sake. If it happens, Chris... Really? Wow. <laughs> I know. If it happens, Chris, what should I ask him? Have you heard any of Chris Free's uh, stuff with the sound of pop up? <laughs> Here we go. I heard him crucify shopping. No, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, no, put it to him. Yeah, no, I think so. No, yeah, I mean, Andy Cross did the mixes for um, To Dream, yeah. Yeah, Andy Croft's been involved as well. It's almost that um, six degrees of separation thing, isn't it? It's like, you know, <laughs> Mr. Crowley, these links are backs, so these links are all there, you know. Well, they are, I mean, because all these people, they're still passionate about the music and they kind of understand all references. And, and the one thing, like I said, that um, people didn't, weren't allowed to pick up on with Respond, and uh, I think even where it gets pigeonholed with this a lot, is that the diversity, like, you know, uh, there's lots of different styles going on, whereas, like, a lot of other genres, like, you're a funk group, you're a funk group, or you're, you're a goth band, you're a goth band, but when you're doing this kind of more soul pop, R&B, bit of rock, alternative folk work. It's all there. And these kind of people actually understand that samba, bit of bossa nova. It's kind of all mixed in, and obviously northern and so on and the rest of it, but it's all in there. You know, these people, like you mentioned, like your Crowley's and Baxis and uh, obviously Andy Lewis is like, boom. And soundtrack, you know, I love sort of soundtrack music and the rest of it um, so they kind of understand that and it's just such a shame that a lot of this stuff gets pigeonholed as oh that's just mod or something if I come up with any other things because I'll probably walk away from this and then start <laughs> uh, guests really? always do my friend guests yeah. always do we can put anything in the show notes and you know Chris this is yeah. honestly this has been so lovely hearing your stories and um, what for some you would think would be like a little nugget in time a little 18 months of working with Weller but actually there's so many connections here it's wonderful I never mentioned it for years, but yeah, no, but once getting back into music, you suddenly get there, like uh, that whole period where I wasn't doing that. And I can remember somebody who's now married to Richard Thompson, the folk singer, Zara, I remember doing stuff with her. I don't know when that was, probably late 80s or whatever, but the thing was just before stopping or whatever, uh, I, I can remember um, having a conversation on Facebook about, God knows what, about four years ago, and she was going, you never mentioned anything about this sort of respond. And I was working with her for about a year, and it was just like, I didn't, you know, it was just that's gone, a bit like uh, Lucy, I think it was like, well, that's gone and and that's that. That was that. Last thing, I mean, the whole change in my philosophy with it is like I work for this um, arts organisation, charity. So I do a songwriting uh, workshop each week on a Thursday uh, with isolated people or uh, neurodiverse, which basically means sort of uh, they could have had breakdowns or they, uh, you know, they're long term unemployed and they uh, don't fit in society anyway. So uh, it's Arts Council funded and all the rest of it. And I do that and I go in there and we kind of write a couple of songs in a couple of hours or whatever, or I guide them through it, you know, do a few lines each, play a few loose chords, and they sort of few from learn guitar too and then take that and knock it in shape. We're going to record six tracks of that, which I think is, is basically going to be a product and it's going to go with my other half, does art, work classes. And that's really great doing that. And then like last night, I said I started this open mic where usual open mics around this area are all sort of rock blues and they all sort of go, and, and I said, no, I want to do this different. We're just going to have a cue if people want to read a poem out that they've done anything, try and avoid just the sort of people just playing Johnny B. Good or, or a slow rock boo. So I was really proud of how that went. And then at the same time, doing this album and 
And I love playing live now with um, Sarah. We went and played Paris uh, the other month. That was great. We've been asked to go back or totem to seven. I love all that. And I love the podcast thing where, you know, tracks are being played in sort of Italy, Japan, France, um, Spain, the US, California. It's amazing. You get played so many times on Spotify and you get something like 0.005 cents of play. It's just <laughs> yeah. absolutely crazy. I know. Yeah. The model is so broken, but it's also so different. I mean, it couldn't be any further away from what it was 40 years ago, could it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, the only way you make money is actually, well, things, I get paid well for doing the songwriting class and to playing live, it all just tops up. And then these kind of recording projects are just sort of, I don't know what they are, sort of, they're like, uh, well, they're pop art. And the reason I called it the sound of pop art initially was a reaction to, I think, that whole Simon Cowell thing at the time, X Factor. And I was thinking, well, that's pop, or they were classifying as pop. And I was thinking, well, what I'm about to do is actually pop art because now people aren't really going to buy this stuff, but it's actually like, you know, some artist like splashing something up and trying to sell it for 100 quid in the local cafe or something, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what it is because you're not going to sell 20,000 copies or anything. Hey, Chris, this has been so lovely. Good luck with what's yeah. next. Keep in touch, keep sharing the music with us and we'll keep updating the show notes on the website as well. But thanks yeah. for joining me, man. Nice one. Okay, au revoir. What a blast that was. My thanks once again to Chris Free for joining me on the podcast. Do check out the show notes for this episode to find everything you need to know about A Craze, that Such Bliss compilation CD and download with extra tracks and the stuff that he's up to currently as well. The new 2023 album produced by Andy Lewis called Shapes and Shadows by Chris's band The Sound of Pop Art and his Mad Affair EP. All details in the show notes for this podcast. Whilst you're on my website, do get yourself into our store. You can get your official podcast mug and t-shirts, plus buy a virtual coffee if you fancy it. Hello to Rich Gill, who's done exactly that. Thanks to you for your support. Hello, John Reed. Hi, John. Hello, Peter E. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee, sir. Martin Bonhom. Hello, Martin. Hi, Mike C. Hello to Simon Cartilage. Martin Glover. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. If you want to get involved, paulwellerfanpodcast.com on the web. You can get in touch on social media, on Twitter or X or whatever it's called this week. <laughs> it's at WellerFanPod or on Facebook, Instagram and threads. Just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.